Let's pray again. Father God, thank you for our time together. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to open the eyes of our hearts. Open our eyes that we might see. And help me as I speak to speak clearly. And we pray, Lord, that um, through the scriptures we come to get a better understanding of what's going on in the heavenly places. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that seems to happen quite regularly in recent times is more and more revelation about what went on behind the scenes in the Second World War. I can remember actually um, quite a few years ago now sitting around dinner table with a very aged aunt who I'd always thought of as, well, not very polite to say, but, you know, rather boring old lady, (laughs) and telling her that I'd heard something on the radio about the Enigma machine and um, the work of Bletchley Park. And suddenly she, her jaw dropped open and she said, how do you know that? I said, well, it's on the radio. And it turned out that she'd actually been one of the people working at Bletchley Park. So she wasn't boring in the least. Um, But she still wasn't going to tell me anything about it because she thought she'd signed the official secrets act and there you are. But we now know, we now know that um, what went on in Bletchley Park, at least in part, were the code breakers, the amazing Colossus uh, computer and how the German ciphers uh, were decrypted and all of that story. And without the work of Bletchley Park, the Allied forces wouldn't have had any idea, really, um, of what was going on in advance, as they did come to know. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20, is the Bletchley Park of the New Testament. It's the decoding centre which opens our eyes to the hidden warfare that is going on all the time. And if the first talk was about Jesus opening our eyes, you could say, in a manner of speaking, this is Paul opening our eyes with the help of the Holy Spirit to what's going on all the time. Let me read the um, passage to you before we study it. And you have got it in front of you on the sheet of paper. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand... Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts or arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. 
With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. But I want to look at this in three sections, really. And the first one is this, the battle that we're in. The battle that we are in. Before Paul signs off this letter, he pulls the curtain back to explain to the Ephesians there's a lot more going on than they can see with the naked eye. There is a spiritual battle. To the skeptics, of course, this all seems very, very unlikely. And it takes the revelation of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. But this isn't a topic that's in the margins of the scriptures. This is a mainstream topic. And it's just as well that it is, because otherwise we would be impeded from living life to the full. We need to realize, and I know that we do, that when we sign up to be Christ's servants, we enlist in an army. We're transferred, as the scriptures put it, and we'll come back to this, we're transferred from one kingdom to another. And now, now, we're getting it together. And when an army gathers, when an army mobilizes, it's a provocative act. And this is precisely what we at St. Michael's are doing right now, and this is precisely what Christians are doing throughout the world as we come back together after months of lockdown. It's so obvious, isn't it? that we're coming out of our slumbers. And I think it was Bismarck that said, mobilization means war, and he wasn't wrong. You know, when China is amassing its forces outside of Taiwan, it looks like war is on the horizon. And the people of God, and we are the people of God, the church of God, we're getting it together. And um, the sleeping dog is not sleeping anymore. It's been kicked. And that's what's going on. We, we have been in a season, seems to me, of enforced hibernation, but we haven't perished, far from it. We have been separated from one another for months, and we have become depleted, yes, no question, but it hasn't destroyed us. And after months of not meeting, uh, we are now reassembling, we're regrouping. Our, our flame, it seems, has flickered. And it's been small and disparate. But we're coming together now. And our praise has been silenced, but we're finding our voice again. And our little individual lights that of necessity were kind of pushed apart. Well, we're regrouping. And this sleeping giant is coming awake. Or should it be a sleeping beauty? And it will not have gone unnoticed in the heavenly realms. We're making a difference. And I believe we're not just coming together, we're much more urgent about what we're about now than we were before. I mean, which of us, when we came back and we were allowed to sing, didn't sing with renewed gusto, eh? Because we knew it was just intrinsically wrong that we hadn't been allowed to voice our praise to the living God. And I appreciate now things that I took for granted before. 
I appreciate, I can see you. You may not appreciate you can see me, I don't blame you. <laughs> but, you know, it, and it's great, we can, we can just chat, and we used to take that for granted, but now I don't take it for granted. And I think, this may be a little bit fanciful, but I think many of us have had to work out what's important over the last year and 18 months. And I tell you, there's nothing quite like being wheeled into intensive care to be put into a coma to know what you're grateful for. So grateful that you know Jesus personally. So grateful for the prayers of God's people. And I've decided to talk about this spiritual warfare business because I'm absolutely sure as praise resounds in the heavenly places, as we regroup, we can expect some kind of an impact in the heavenly places. And I want us to be prepared, and I want us to remember the spiritual fight we're in. So that's what we're going to do now. And let me remind us who's writing these verses. Paul, by no means, is sentimental. You know, he's not some weirdo sitting on the extreme fringe of what it means to be a follower of God. He's not someone with an inadequate brain who can't put two thoughts together. He's the writer of Romans who has kept theologians happy for, for years and years and years. He's a church planter who went from place to place to place, starting new congregations and then going back to them to encourage the people. And he's writing to the people of Ephesus precisely to equip them. And he's saying to them before he signs off, put on the whole armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, it's difficult when one talks about spiritual warfare to get this in perspective. And if we play down spiritual warfare to the point where it's so marginal in our lives that we don't take any notice of it, then we're going to be vulnerable, weak, and powerless and actually cut a rather ridiculous figure in the landscape of spiritual progress, as ridiculous as a soldier wandering onto a battlefield unawares. You know, imagine a chap dressed in civilian clothes in the middle of the Battle of the Somme or something, just blindly walking around. It'd be absolutely absurd. And if we forget the power of God, God's weapons and his presence, we will be needlessly terrified, and that's not a good place to be. I think that Paul's perspective is exactly the perspective we want to aim for. He, has, he gives time to this topic. He acknowledges it. He teaches about it. He's experienced in it. But it isn't the first thing he talks about. It comes at the end of a letter. It, it, it doesn't overshadow everything else he's got to say. He puts it last, finally, he says. And there are two images that he uses here which we should hold in our minds. It's the image of both standing, withstanding and progressing, and the image of struggling, contending. And both happen. Paul tells us six times that we're up against it. He uses that phrase, against, against, against. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, 
against the powers of this present darkness. So if you've ever felt up against it, it's not really a surprise. That comes with the territory. But at the very same time, he talks about how we're able to stand and withstand. And uh, he uses the word stand many times as well. So let's, let's have a look at these two things that he holds in tension. And if, let's take it in the order he does. Strength first and struggle next. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, verse 10. Are we sent onto this battlefield just to care for ourselves, to dig in and get through some way or another? No. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God and then what will happen? Then you'll be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when the day day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything else, to stand. And then in verse 14, stand therefore. So the picture he's taking and presents us with is not like those medieval knights. Or, you know, if you go to the Wallace collection, you'll see these, the kind of armory, which was so heavy that if you had that armor on and you were knocked on your back, you were ready to be killed because you just couldn't get up again that is not the picture the prevailing picture here is at the very worst what happens to us in the fight is we end up standing that that's the worst we get in this picture having done all to stand we're we're never knocked out we're able to stand and withstand so you could write over this passage these are our standing orders because that's true But equally, um, we're up against the reality of a fight. Now, before you made any effort to live for Christ, life had its challenges, certainly. And they were common to all people. You know, life is challenging, full stop. But to follow Christ, when you decide to follow Christ, you really find you're up against it. And it's not simply flesh and blood. This is the phrase Paul uses. It's, it's not just, you know, that you annoy someone and they annoy you. You're not, you're not just fighting other people's personality. There is something else going on. And it simply can't be explained away in terms of just annoying one another or invading someone else's space. No, there is a spiritual fight going on. And if you think that's a bit fanciful still, well, you've got to take a look at Jesus' life and read about the temptations that he endured there. Um, you can see the perspective of his life is one big spiritual fight. Or ask yourself this question. So what reason can you think of in simply human terms that can account for the level of hatred and opposition that Jesus attracted? Who would guess that someone who literally spent their time serving others, feeding others, healing others, teaching others, caring for them, loving them, would end up tortured and crucified? Why would you want to do that? Well, it's because it's not just flesh and blood that he was up against. He's up against the devil's schemes, the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the biblical picture is a very disturbing picture Because part of what I've said already, part of what Jesus does is to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness 
to the kingdom of the son whom he loves. And that's how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. We've been bought at a price. The blood of God shed for us on the cross. And you know it. And it's happened to you and it's happened to me. And the Holy Spirit who now takes control in our hearts and minds and accompanies you and me and leads you and me. And everything about your life has changed. And we, in a way, the whole of the rest of our life is discovering how profoundly God is at work in us and changing us. Let me give you some examples. Your aspirations have changed. We make it our aim to please him, is what Paul says. And it's true. Your way of thinking has changed. If you were going through the book of Ephesians, you discover that Paul says in chapter 4 that his readers should no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. The whole way you look at life has changed now. Your family has changed. You belong now in the family of God. Your purpose has changed. You realize that God has created you for good works which he's prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. The things that bring you pleasure has changed in your life. The things that you care about changed. You now care about all sorts of people and issues that before would have passed you by. Your character has changed and is changing. You're kinder, more patient, more generous. In fact, Paul can say to the Ephesians, they've changed so much in in chapter 5, verse 8, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And the enemy knows you have changed. You've been revived and you're on the battlefield. So you and I need to know how to man up and stand up. And this talk is a reality check to make sure that we're equipped. But perhaps one of the most important things I want to say is this. Sometimes the most effective enemy weapons are simple and very undramatic. Sometimes the most effective weapons of the enemy are just so simple and really undramatic. So reaching back to um, World War II, for example, it wasn't just the big tanks that were effective or nuclear bomb that was effective. I understand that in enemy-occupied territory, for example, something as simple as putting sugar in the petrol tanks of people's cars worked a treat. It, it, it was effective. And I sometimes think that we as followers of Christ, we, we have a wrong impression of what effectively neuters God's family. Actually, it came home to me when um, Liz and I were entertaining, if you can call it that, having scrambled egg and bacon uh, on our kitchen table with a Romanian pastor. And he had pastored his church in in Romania for many, many years. And over the course of his sermon, he had told us extraordinary stories of hardship that he and his family had endured. And that um, the police had come, knocked on on his door and told him, if you go on with your church preaching the gospel, we will arrest you, we'll arrest your wife, we'll rape your children. And all these things happen. And... um, we were in awe of the stories this man told us and how God gave him strength and his family strength and the followers of Christ's strength. So actually having him in our house to give him scrambled egg on taste was, 
was a bit of a surreal experience anyway. But it was something that he said to us, which, um, which I'll never forget. He said, actually, Rupert, those, those were the easy days. It, it's today which is the hard days. And he said, in those days, you just had to make one decision. Will I die for Christ? But he said, today I lead a church of tens of thousands. And every day we, we see people falling away because they have to make decisions. Will I compromise my faith or not? And it made me see that actually some very effective weapons are just ordinary every day. I'd, I'm pretty sure that most of us here, you know, if someone walked up to us, put a pistol to our head and said, renounce Christ or I'm going to shoot you, you'd know how to make a decision. But it's the everyday things that happen. Discouragement. Very ordinary, very, very ordinary. A little voice that says in your head, I can't see I'm making any difference at all. It's all such a struggle. Or accusation. Self-accusation. You really don't cut it, you know. A little voice in your head says, you don't pray enough, you don't fast enough, you don't read your Bible enough. Well, Satan's called the accuser of a brethren. Where do you think those kind of thoughts come from? Or defeatism. Look at you at St. Michael's. You've hardly got a 20 and 30-year-old in your midst. Look how few you are. You're never going to cut it. Well, it's true, we don't actually have many 20s and 30s, but I'm not defeatist about it. We soon will have. The Lord reigns as a kingdom to be built. Or challenging the word of God. Did God say? Do you remember someone else said that in scripture? Chapter 3, Genesis. Oh, yes. Did God say? You will surely not die. Where did those thoughts come from, challenging the word of God? Or just... If you look in the Old Testament, you know, the old tricks are still effective, even though they're old. Compromise. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. I can have a foot in both camps. Well, you can't. You can't. If you're compromised, you're, you're just waiting to be shot down. Or grumbling. You know, it's, it's absolute bane of God's people. <laughs> gossip and grumbling. Any time that you choose to gossip, any time that you choose to grumble, you're doing the enemy's work for him. And you're just kind of waving on the battlefield saying, shoot me now. It's a killer. So some of the things that we think are just everyday life, well, they're not everyday life in the spiritual battle. That's, how to, that's a self-inflicted wound if you do any of that stuff. So let's, let's move on to the God's protective armor. And notice in verse 11, you put on every bit, every bit, the whole panoply of God, as the hymn would put it, we don't leave any out. Because if you leave any out, it, you'll have an Achilles heel. It won't be covered. And these weapons are not the world's weapons. Paul says elsewhere to the Corinthians, we don't fight like the world fights. So let's go through, go through them. Truth, the belt of truth, belt up. <laughs> Except it could be misunderstood, so I'll say buckle up. Where is truth to be found? in the scriptures, to the word and to the testimonies. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's like Jesus says to us, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And did God say, yes, he did. It stands written. How did Jesus rebut Satan in the temptations? He said that exactly, it stands written, and he quoted scripture. 
He said things like, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Did God say? Absolutely he did. He's on record as saying that. When God says he cares about you, he cares about you. When God says he has a purpose for you, he has a purpose for you. When God says he forgives you, he forgives you. When God says he loves you and accepts you, he loves you and accepts you. When God says he has good gifts for us, he has good gifts for us. He talks the truth about himself, he talks the truth about us, he talks the truth about future. Now, if you stop reading the scriptures, it's like walking about with your trousers down on the battlefield. It's, you're just naked. The belt of truth comes off, you're exposed. You've spiritually surrendered. You're hopelessly compromised. But with a sword in your hand, you're powerfully equipped, and so am I. So the next piece of the kit, the breastplate of righteousness in place. Do you know what that means? Let me tell you. It means you and I can stand tall in the presence of God. When you're in right relationship with God, that's what righteousness is. You need never be ashamed in his presence. Just like a father and a child, the security there. There's no secret sin, there's no need to hide from him. But if there is a secret sin, then you've flung away your security and you're running for your life. And note, this is a breastplate, not a backplate. You don't have any cover when you run away. The third weapon, the gospel of peace, verse 15. We're not warmongers. We're not looking to provoke a conflict. But we have the most marvelous message in the world, and it's the message that the world's longing to hear, that you can have peace in our time with God. We can relate with him. One at a tremendous price, God reconciling the world to himself. And it's odd, but this message of peace is going to cause conflict. And haven't we experienced this? Because it's offensive to so many that we're saying the way of peace and salvation comes through an executed man on a cross. But that's the way it is. We have the gospel of peace. And incidentally, I don't think it's wise or our job to go praying against Satan or looking for demons. I think it's just all we need to do is shine the light and the demons have to disappear. Just prevail with the gospel of peace and you're pushing forward the kingdom of God. Well, next, the shield of faith. There's a very old-fashioned film now, very dated, but it's still something of a classic called Spartacus. And in the battles of the film Spartacus, which goes on and on and on forever, as far as I can remember, um, the highlights are when they joined the shields together and there's a kind of interlocking mechanism and they go forward like one giant tortoise and everyone's protected by a shield. And our shield of faith is a corporate activity. A good word for faith in this is trust. And I'm afraid we will discover there are times where individually we don't have the strength to lift a shield of faith. Our own faith is just weak because we're weak. You know, you might be physically exhausted, you might be ill, but together God's community lifts that shield of faith. Together we protect one another through prayer, through engaging in the spiritual fight for one another. And the mystery, but it, it, it's, it's a scintillating idea, is that God is trying to train us, every single one of us, 
whether you're a, at work or retired or whether you're young or old, do you know what he's looking for in our lives? Do you know what really pleases him? It's when we do this thing called walking by faith, which means basically we're out of our depth, but we're relying on God. When, when we, some of us sitting here today, you will know there are some areas of life you're simply not in control of. And you have to say, Lord, help, help, help. But the reality is, God wants that to be our attitude to every area of life. And it's what brings him pleasure when we trust him. And we're to help one another to do that. What are we trusting God for at St. Michael's? Well, I've been talking about some of it as we've been regrouping coming out of lockdown. But I'll, I'll share just a little bit under this because I think we're going to have to exercise the shield of faith together. So I'm trusting God for our children's work. And I'd, I'd like your prayers over this. You know, our children's work is depleted right now because of what's gone on in lockdown. It's absolutely nobody's fault. It's just what comes with the territory. But lots of people in every church up and down the land have discovered what a weekend is like when you're not obligated to do children's work. And they've fallen off for, for rota because there have been no rotas. And suddenly they've discovered this thing called the weekend. And uh, every church is having to reassemble and we're having to reassemble what goes on with our children's work. And we're longing to have many vibrant groups, and we will have. And I, what I'm not doing now, don't mishear me, I'm not putting a guilt trip on you so that someone feels really guilty, starts squirming and says, OK, I'll do it because no one else does, but I hate children. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's actually why we don't recruit from the front. What I am doing is saying, will you pray? Will you join me in praying that God will raise up people who actually love children and actually are gifted with children, actually want to see this the happiest, most lovely hour of a child's life, so that we can have as many groups as we need and be proud of our children's work. That's, we need to lift up that shield of faith. Here's another one. 20s and 30s, I've mentioned it. But, you know, there's a staggering lack of 20s and 30s in, in, in our congregation. And we need to pray. And it's slightly like the cart and the horse, which comes first. Do we put on stuff for 20s and 30s before they're here? Well, we're going to have to, because they're not going to come otherwise. But we, we need to pray, because God, God's kingdom belongs to all ages. And it just can't be right that, that they're not with us. Let alone, you know, the, or, or, the things that normally would grab our attention, you know, how to support people in trouble, etc., etc., etc. Faith takes the army of God forward, and it's something we do together. Let's move on. The helmet of salvation, verse 17. What's this about? Covering our minds, our thinking. And I think it's also about marking out our identity. You know, in the helmets of those days, how did you know when you met someone on the battlefield which side they were on? It was marked on their helmet. And I think part of what it means to have the full armor of God is that you're clearly identifiable as a follower of Christ and your mind is protected. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, verse 17. Well, if you know anything at all about the word of God, you know that it says, is not my word like a hammer, it breaks rocks in pieces. It has authority. Now here's something you may not have noticed because I've noticed that over the years, people, when they talk about the armor of God, they stop teaching there. 
And it's like, okay, so you've got all those component bits, that's the armor of God, get on with it. But I don't think it is the end of the armor of God. I think the armor of God continues in verse 18 to 20. The best means of defense, it seems to me, is to keep going. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, says Paul, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And it's almost like the best means of defense is, is attack. Not in an aggressive, hostile way, but it's like, I have met Christians who are just almost fearful to talk about um, Jesus Christ. And they almost believe that it's like to talk about Jesus Christ is to put yourself in a more exposed position. I don't believe that. I think actually to plow on proclaiming the gospel is one of the best means of keeping going, keeping the battle won by Christ as more people come into the kingdom. That's why it's part of the armor of God. Pray for me, says Paul, that I won't shut up, that I would declare the gospel fearlessly, just like I should. And then a couple of other things. Pray in the spirit, which probably means, could mean pray in tongues, but it, it means be led by the Holy Spirit too. And be alert, verse 18. If you ask anyone in the army, they will tell you it's very hard to maintain a high level of alertness. You, you can really only be on full alert for rather a short period of time. Your concentration will wane. And so in a way, this talk is partly to up our alertness to what's really going on, and we need to help one another see it. And as we do this, we're going to rediscover again and again how trustworthy God is and how these weapons sustain us. And I close with this... Um, this example and life experience that I'm so grateful for. Many, many years ago in this actual church, I was sitting in a pew, hard pew, somewhere on the right-hand side, my right, your left, and a guy called Bill Burnett was talking, who was a retired bishop of Cape Town. He was taking a, a little weekend mission like this. And at the end, he invited people forward for prayer, and I went forward for prayer and um, knelt down sort of at a rail there, and... Bill, I remember, was wearing his robes. And um, as I asked for prayer, he put his hand, he knelt next to me, and he put his hand on my far shoulder. So it was like I was cloaked under his wings, um, as it were. I don't wear robes, so you don't need to worry. It's not going to happen to you. And um, he reminded me, Rupert, are you away? You're in a spiritual fight. And I said, yes, yes, Bill, I am. I'm aware. And he said, well, let me tell you a couple of things to remember. He says, first of all, when you talk to Satan, you don't need to be polite. I thought that was an interesting thing for a bishop to say. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not polite. He said, good. <laughs> and then he said, always remember this. When you talk to Satan, and when Satan talks to you, when Satan talks to you, he talks out of the side of his mouth. And I looked at him rather puzzled. And he said, because you've got your foot on his head. Good point. Good point. And, and accurate. Accurate. You have everything that you need to prevail in this spiritual fight. 
Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. We just need to claim this authority and walk in it. Amen? We're not quite Pentecostal, are we? Amen? <laughs> yes, amen, I agree. Good. Let's pray together, and then Jack can tell us what's going to happen about food. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you haven't left us naked on the battlefield. You haven't left us groping around and just not understanding what's going on. We do have instructions. We do have weapons. We do have insight. We do have your Holy Spirit. We do have your word. We do have one another. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would find us faithful in the fight. And we pray that, reminded of the authority you've given us and the protection you've given us, we would be prayerful and putting on the whole armor of God. And we commit this church to you, Lord, and we say we are your soldiers. We are in your service. We're up for whatever you want us to do. We want to see your kingdom come and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray, Lord, that as we have lunch together and as we share company with one another and as we reflect on this day, we remember that you're faithful and loving and kind. You've got good plans for us, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Set us on our feet that we might be useful in your service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.